0: Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, the French philosopher of food, Brier Savarin, wrote in his Physiology of Taste, The pleasures of the table belong to all times and all ages, to every country and to every day. They go hand in hand with all our other pleasures, outlast them and remain to console us for their loss. The story of food is cultural as well as culinary and what we eat and how we eat has always been linked to who we are and whom we might become. From the great humanist thinker Erasmus warning us to always use a fork to the materialist philosopher Feuerbach telling us boldly you are what you eat. But what have we eaten and why? In Europe since the Renaissance, how have our intellectual appetites fed our empty stomachs? With we'll me to explore the history of food in modern Europe is Rebecca Spang, lecturer in modern history at University College London, and author of The Invention of the Restaurant, Ivan Day, food historian and author of Eat, Drink and Be Merry, The British at Table from 1600 to 2000, and the historian Felipe Fernandez Amesto, professor of History and Geography at Queen Mary University of London, and author of a new book, Food, a History. Felipe, you write in your new book the movement known as the Renaissance transformed courtly cookery as it transformed other arts. Can you give us some idea of what that transformation was? Yeah, sure, although I'm a bit reluctant to do
1: that because I I look at across the table, you, Melvin, and I see an intellectual and so you naturally think the Renaissance is terribly important, and actually 500 years ago, the most important thing that was going on in the history of food, indeed probably in the history of the world, was the vast ecological exchange which saw foodstuffs being transplanted from one continent to the other for the first time in history, you know, since Pangaea was shattered and the continents were sundered, and that was a huge, you know, human intervention evolution which substituted for the divergence of biota from continental continent, a new model of convergence. Uh, But the Renaissance is going on as well, I grant you that, and the Renaissance essentially is a movement of the recovery of antiquity, antique models of how to think and how to live. And just as humanists were recovering uh, ancient models of thought, so uh, eaters were discovering what they thought were classical ways of eating. And you've got... Uh, Perhaps lagging a bit behind the other arts, but in the art of the preparation of food, just as in the arts of painting and sculpture, you've got this reception of what people thought were antique models and weren't always accurate in their understanding of what ancient eating was like. But certainly in the 17th century, with a bit of time lag by comparison with the other arts, you've got something of a revolution in taste, the substitution of a style, particularly of you know high-status eating of courtly food, which instead of being modelled on Islam, which was the main model that was followed in the Middle Ages, now came to be modelled on a vision of antiquity, albeit not necessarily an
0: accurate one. So what was the model of Islam that they followed? What was it to do with how... Oh, it was all lush. It
1: was lush. It was, it was a gilded, you know, everything was coated with saffron, everything was flavoured with rose... Petals. It was really sort of gungy. Almond milk was splashed everywhere. Um, These were dishes which sort of suppurated with exoticism. And there was a sort of reaction against that in favour of um, the sort of flavour that people most associated with antiquity, which, of course, was that which you found in the recipes of Apicius, a flavour which was much cruder, much... um, much more direct, which in ancient recipes uh, was dominated by liquamen, by garum, by fish sauce that the Romans made out of rotting tunny and and mackerel entrails. Uh, A sauce rather like, I mean, you know, for modern eaters, the best thing to think of is something like the Thai nam pla. That was the, you know, the supposedly authentic taste of antiquity. And you get a reversion to flavours which are acidic and... And salty in tribute to that supposed antique tradition.
0: You brought in the word courtly. Can you j- briefly tell us what was the picture? Uh, how food arrived uh, at the state of it did in Renaissance France at the, co- at the courts, the great Louis courts, the Sun King's court. Where are we there with food well, after you your after, a after very your long first pass with the with the Renaissance? We can sort of yes. settle at the bull charging. Take it by the horns sure. in Renaissance France.
1: I, you know, my instinct is always to set everything in a vast global context and put it in a you know, really long time frame, long-running time frame. And I think one of the really interesting things about the history of food is that in remote... Antiquity, and in what we think of in you know heavy inverted commas as primitive societies, what differentiates people socially in terms of food is how much they eat. It's their you know what economists call their food entitlement. And the higher up the ranks of society you are, the more you eat. And you know, antiquity is full of these images of heroic um, eaters. It you know, be eating a lot is almost a sort of act of redistributive justice because it creates crumbs from the rich man's table. It recycles. What a shred of your wealth, not it? Yeah, absolutely. But very interestingly, in some cultures, including uh, very notably ours, uh, that changes and courtly cuisine comes to be differentiated, but not by quantity, but by the ingredients and by the style of preparation. Uh, so it's a long process, but a, a a you know, big moment in it I think, does occur in France in the seventeenth century you 've got a succession of three kings, mean Henri quatre, who you know wanted every peasant to have a chicken in the pot and Although he was a man of um, uh, relatively frugal tastes um himself and like plain, simple. Fair he was uh, also you know a big kind of patron of cuisine, and he succeeded by Louis the Thirteenth and Louis the Fourteenth who are both gigantic eaters, but also who employ um, chefs professional chefs uh, to create dishes worthy of a prince in the antique tradition, and their cooks begin
0: to diffuse these courtly recipes through society by writing cookbooks. Rebecca Spang, the excesses of the French court and the huge eating that they uh, engaged in, or something a bit of slight of uh, face, pretended to engage in, it shows of power, shows of strength. There was a reaction to that with Castiglione's The Book of the got to yeah, Cotigiano. Can you just tell us about that reaction and how it came about?
2: Um, what I would think would be crucial is to look both in the 17th century, uh, really coming out of humanism, the development of books of good manners, of the idea of civilization in the way that one interacted with um, other members of court society, uh, culminating in a way at the Versailles of Louis the Fourteenth, where, of course, very importantly, the a- aristocrats who have been, Fighting a civil war against the monarchy in the middle of the 17th century, have all been centralized, brought together at Versailles to be impressed by a particular model of courtly life, which of course includes courtly food. So, one of the most important things that happens once the major aristocrats have been brought to Versailles is that you can get the beginning of an establishment of a single model of good taste in food, in dress in dancing, in music, all of it is to emanate from the single person of the king.
0: But that is continuing the idea of what we would nowadays think of as grossness, the heroic appetites which go with heroic and and powerful beings. There was a reaction against it. Uh, The reaction is best expressed in this book of the Corte by Castiglione, which comes from a different tradition, which one can reach far back and say it's the ascetic tradition. And this is to do with restraint, isn't it? And that begins to dominate the courts and that begins to be a rival tradition.
2: It's a rival tradition that gets worked out in several different contexts. It's going to get worked out in a religious framework with the distinction um, of a sort of inward-looking Protestantism that is not about display, um, but which, of course, will be made illegal in France after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. Um, It's also a tradition that gets elaborated within more of a social or political framework by the encyclopedists in the middle of the 18th century who argue throughout most of the Encyclopédie that the sort of splendor that was suitable for so-called Eastern or Asian courts was actually a source of decadence and decline just exactly because it was an exchange between cultures. And they're really making an argument that we would today recognize as a sort of bioregionalism. They're saying, no, we as the French must eat what we have natively here. And the importing of foodstuffs and of models of diet from Persia, which is, of course, the Great East in antiquity. Um, That's actually the cause of the collapse of the Roman Empire, and it could be the cause of the collapse of our civilization as well. I think it's
0: important... Can can I just... Can I stay with Rebecca for a moment? And I've got to bring in Ivan. Erasmus involved himself in this as well. Again, it would seem to us uh, rather fastidiously for the great humanist scholar becoming obsessed with the the use of the fork. Uh, Was it usual for people of that uh, uh, intellectual and social uh, power and dignity to involve themselves as much in manners and food?
2: Oh, yes, because it's about how people are in culture, in society. It's not really until the 19th century that one begins to see the emergence of a completely distinct, separate, and in some ways marginalised discourse about food and eating. Certainly in the 16th century, cookbooks are also medical books, and for Erasmus, because the table is one of the main sites for the exchange of ideas, um, to be able to behave in a mannerly fashion with one's equals um, is a sign of respect to them. So it's absolutely crucial to the whole humanist project.
0: I'm in day to come across you, and with that idea of uh, meals perhaps coming to mean something different in the Renaissance, and as they're reaching back... Uh, if they reach back to Plato, this symposium is a great discussion, it's also a great meal. Is there, is there any sense of, of going back to the time when, when conversation was around that sort of uh, table and therefore to take the table itself as seriously
3: as the conversation became a natural thing to do? Yes, I think even culinary artists were involved in conversation pieces. During the Renaissance you start to see the emergence of table centrepieces in the form of works of art. Um, sculptures made of food materials like marzipan and sugar which can act as a focus for conversation um, so that the um, the diners are actually having a symposium in the classical sense They're not only enjoying the food and the conversation but they're directing their attention to a particular theme. This lasted right through into the 18th century. Um, I was involved in a reconstruction recently of a... Um, dessert by Menon um, from 1749 where there were sugar sculptures um, of the myth of um, Circe where she was turning Odysseus's men into swine. It was an allegory of greed, an ironic subject for conversation at a meal. So even the food itself could act as a, a vehicle for the expression of um, higher ideals and just the, the, the corp- corpulent aspects of food. Before we move on, let's, can, we just, can I just get, as it were, not rid
0: of, but deal with a, a small and obvious point? We're talking about a very small percentage of society here. One presumes that the sort of 95% just went on uh, eating what they could get their hands on in an extremely and uh, uh, literally local sense throughout this period.
3: Yes, I mean, coming back to the Renaissance, um, this idea of um, the rejection of Arabic food... Um, Actually, it was rejected for regional Italian food, which was based on local produce. Um, Platina, who wrote um, the the earliest cookery book um, in in the early modern period, um, actually stole recipes from a friend called Martino from Como, who was actually promoting quite simple country food, which was appearing on the the, the tables of Renaissance humanist scholars, rather than a a self-conscious... Um, revival of, of Roman food. I mean, Apicius' text wasn't disseminated for a very long time. Um, so I think, actually, ordinary food during the Renaissance was very important to these provincial scholars living in places like Urbino, um, and other outposts. Of... Yes,
0: but just to, 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 just to conclude that, that, that little digressive digression of a thought, really, the, the people who are making the experiments and bringing this in and changing things, we are talking about a courtly group or within the smaller cities and smaller towns of the, the more powerful and richer group. I just want the, the idea of which flow. I, I should imagine this is a top flow, but the undertow is very slow and very slow to change and still eating much the same as they've been eating for uh, decades Absolutely. I beforehand. mean,
3: ordinary country people and urban poor um, always subsisted on what they could get hold of. But there was a gradual percolation down the social scale of courtly food um, through the cookery texts. Um, after the Reformation, in this country at least, there was a feminization of cookery as well. The, the monastic establishments, which um, had provided the service of, of, of Charity and medicine was taken over by gentlewomen um, who eventually started to write cookery books themselves. Um, and these were targeted at the merchant classes and the middle classes rather than the wealthy. Um, but by the 19th century, I mean, the court food of the 17th century is actually beginning to percolate into the middle classes of London, for instance. I'd like to keep in the 17th century
0: for a minute. The, the Puritan movement in, the sev- in 17th century Britain, did that, is, that an, is that a marker of a distinction which began to develop between a Protestant and a Catholic uh, uh, menu, as it were, diet?
3: Well, a number of very important things happened. I I think one of them was the loss of a lot of folk food customs. For instance, wedding food, which was considered by Puritans to be um, an aspect of going amaying. It was associated with paganism. A lot of our folk traditions of food were purged and not to be recovered after the Restoration um, I think probably the best example of this is a um, cookery book that was published just after the Restoration, which was allegedly written by Elizabeth Cromwell, Cromwell's wife. And um, it, there's a long preface to it, which actually satirises um, her actual rather mean cookery, but it seems really that Cromwell ate quite well. Um, the other aspect of this, I think, is that um, the, 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 the Catholic... Um, European monarchs, like Louis XIV, um, expressed their absolutism through the way in which they dressed their table. I mean the best example is of James II, who not only had the most splendid coronation feast since the medieval period, rivaling that of a very famous feast in the 15th century given to Archbishop Neville, um, but also had a feast which he didn't attend in Rome, um, where the table was laid out, again, with sculptures of his virtues. Um, he was, I think, you know, trying to assert um, the absolutist idea through food as an artistic medium.
0: Philippa, you wanted to comment earlier. And, um...
3: Yeah, well, I mean, all
1: these changes are gradual, obviously. One searches the key moments and representative moments, um, Courtly food isn't instantly transformed any more than the food of the people is, but I I do think a new era of abundance does begin with this ecological exchange that I began by mentioning right at the beginning, because there are really tremendously productive. This 14th, 15th century. Well, no, I mean this really happens. from the discovery of America onwards, because mm. it's the great voyages of exploration which really yeah. shift these biota around the world. And you've got I mean, huge differences made, for example, to peasant diets in China, well, admittedly very gradually in the course of the 17th and 18th century by the reception of things like maize and sweet potatoes. It's a great an explosion. The Chinese population in the 18th century I think wouldn't have been possible without this. The case everybody knows about in Europe is the potato, which admittedly doesn't uh, really impact on population levels and begin to generate potential in Europe for huge new initiatives like industrialization until the late 18th and 19th centuries. But again, you know, maize is also important in some parts of Europe as a new foodstuff. And um, there's things like, you know, tomatoes and and avocados, you can't imagine the Italian national dish, the tricolore, without tomatoes. And avocados in both of those came from the New World. Tomato and avocado are two of the very few words in English which are derived from Nahuatl. Um, avocado is derived from the Nahuatl, the language of, um, indigenous language of the Aztecs of Mexico. In their language, um, the word for avocado is "ahuacatl," uh, which literally means a testicle, uh, and the English word tomato is derived from the Nahuatl tomato. So, um, uh, you know, you can't imagine the cuisine of Malaya without peanuts or of Thailand without chilies. Um, So there are a lot of cuisines at very low social level which are uh, benefiting from the infusion of new ingredients, and that means, you know, more food, more calories, better-fed peasantries, and more... People. The point I wanted to come in on earlier, when you very properly stopped me, uh, was about Castiglione and this new Renaissance aesthetic of, of restraint. And it's true there was a sort of Renaissance aesthetic of restraint in some ways. The reaction against um, Islamic food was in favor of a simpler kind of cuisine. But, but Castiglione also talked about sprezzatura. You know, there's something phony about Renaissance restraint... It's really all to do with contriving an appearance of restraint, but, you know, putting a lot of effort into it. I think that's where, you know, these two aesthetics meet in the the table. I think
2: that's absolutely crucial because it's a lot like the 18th century Nouvelle Cuisine movement and very much like 1970s Nouvelle Cuisine. Both are about having less on your plate per se but making quite a show about what it is that is on your plate.
0: Well, let's come to the restaurants. You've written about restaurants. How did the restaurant go from bring a broth to a place where people went to eat?
2: Well, of course, in the beginning, um, ironically enough, people go to restaurants specifically not to eat. A restaurant is was a, was a restorative broth, and you, what you need to have restored is your appetite. It's the idea that because you've been leading such an overcharged, busy, sensitive, high-paced, intellectual life in the 18th century, um, all of your nervous fibers are overcharged, and you just couldn't possibly eat. So instead, you go to a place called a salle de restaurateur, a restaurateur's room, where you can have your restorative broth. But fascinating, though, that is, and of course the whole point is about displaying, it works in very well, again, with what we were just saying about the nouvelle cuisine, displaying the idea that you're too weak to eat. Once you've shown that you're too weak to eat, well then, maybe actually you, you could just have, well you know, maybe a biscuit and, well, a glass of wine. And even after that, the particular changes in the form of presentation, everything that we today take completely for granted, like small separate tables, a menu, all of those innovations, which initially have almost medicinal connotations, begin to appeal to people who feel that Sounds they like are sensitive? Lunch all this. That's right. Well, it is. I mean, it's it's very much about the development. Did this of... get
0: a kick? Did this get a, a kickstart? That uh, after a, a great number of aristocrats had been guillotined, leaving their chests with uh, nowhere to go, <laughs> to set up their own. That's uh...
2: so frequently said. Yeah. Well, especially...
0: it's, I'm saying it again. Well, what do you think?
2: I think it's very popular in the 19th century because it's an but idea it right? of the democratisation of privilege. No, it's not right. If it's 1794, the last thing you want to do is to hang out a sign saying, I used to be Marie Antoinette's cook. <laughs> I mean, that's just a guarantee you're going to get hauled before so the revolution. So it's not right. So these chefs no. did not work. set up Ivan, no.
0: I mean, what do you think? Do you think it's right?
3: Well, I think that there are some aspects of this happening. I mean, um, the restaurateur Beauvillier, for instance. Exactly. Goes um,
2: into business in 1780.
3: Well, he went into business actually imitating, I believe, a, a Bishopsgate tavern called the the London Tavern. I think his first establishment was it not called the. It's the,
2: called the Hotel de Londres. Yes, the right, Hotel that's de right. Londres, yes. So it's um, again, it's the importance of this sort of cosmopolitan community.
3: Yeah, but there was a dissemination of. of culinary staff throughout Europe I mean um, there was a sort of diaspora if you like for instance um, in this town um, at the beginning of the 19th century there were quite a few cooks and confectioners Um, Jaran, a French confectioner who um, had actually, well, he'd actually worked for Napoleon at one point, but he, he came here with the kind of skills that had been forged in French 18th-century grand houses. So when did we get the idea that the restaurant was a
0: place where, uh, still we're talking about pretty rich people, would go to eat instead of eating at home and would go in the sense of a lot of people going, and uh, not just one or two of the odd chap or the, odd, the odd, odd lady. When did it grow as a... When are we talking about getting a grip on the way that society
3: behaved? Well, I mean, I, I find that a, a lot of culinary history tends to be Francocentric, and I will always make an argument to look at other food cultures, particularly of this country. I mean, people went out to eat in this country, and they went to places where they could too as in the early 19th-century restaurants, sit at private tables. I mean, Peeps, for instance, and Evelyn frequently dined in this city in establishments called Ordinaries, where they could discuss letters or business quietly in a corner and eat actually very good food. Um, In fact, I mean, there was a cult, I believe, um, at the end of the 18th, early 19th century, in France. There was a sort of anglo um, interest, wasn't there, in, in English culture, which was reflected, I think, in some um, cooks offering um, a sort of nouvelle cuisine that was based on English food. Well, to localise think... to
0: localize, to localize this, which, which, which is um, restrained this, just to a century or so, Philippe, which is, I know, sort of not the sweep that you will enjoy, but just to keep it to a mere century or something. Do you think that? Oh, the, that's would cool. Th- as <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, this restaurant culture. You know, the the the
1: the real first great efflorescence of it is in ancient China. And, uh, the wonderful descriptions of uh, restaurant meals in Tang texts, and of course in the Song dynasty, you've got the, one of the most famous painting, the Song dynasty, of Kaifung at uh, dawn, with all the sort of traders bringing the, their goods in, and the restaurants opening up, and the diners
0: sitting down to their first meal of the um, of the day. If we can fast forward and head west, though, um, sure. the 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 idea of a distinction between the British diet and the French diet brought into play an idea of national character. The British were the stout oh, yeah. persons, yeah. strong and meat-eating. The French were the scraggy people, uh, uh, shifty and fish-eating. Uh, and this was represented in a lot in Gilray and Hogarth and so on. But it became part of the national identity as well as perhaps part of the national eating culture. Now, could you address that? You,
1: know, you can almost detect this in Ivan's very mild and scholarly reproof to French historiography for concentrating too much on the uh, innovative... Characteristics of French cuisine, and you know, Ivan's really putting in a, a word for the good old honest plain English fare reminds me very much of what Lord Rochester said about the inferiority of French kickshaws over a good joint of beef full horseman's weight. I, know, I think that all cultures have their prejudices about food, and that one of the great stories of world history is about how, you know, cultures get to be permeated by the tastes. Um, the savors, the ingredients, uh, the c- cooking and serving styles that come from abroad, and this, you know, interplay of um, uh, but it isn't so much just test- I'm looking for it's almost
0: building a, it's almost building a national character around the food idea, isn't it? That the British were stout, uh, fierce people, far less populous than France, but we could take them on and. Biff them, partly because they was, yes. were, were sort of thin it's, and it's... meagre people who, who merely trifled with fish. Yeah, you're describing, kind of aren't you, the cartoons yes, of am, Gilray yeah. and
1: Cookshank, yeah. where you've got, um, uh, you know, uh, le Rosbif beef anglais um, resisting the batterie de cuisine of Napoleon. Yes. And... Um, uh, and, and that's right, of course, the, 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 there are also French continents. Rebecca's book's got a very good one, which you know, inverts this joke and shows the thin Englishman arriving in France and getting grossly fattened up by uh, the dubious attentions of French restaurateurs.
3: One of the areas in which the British excelled was at roasting in front of an open fire. And the French envied those skills, and they also envied the the good cuts of meat that we had to improve agriculture and husbandry in this country. And the the sirloin of beef became the symbol of the British stout, um, obstinate, independent, loving man. Even the, the Lord Mayor's Banquet in London, on the sideboard, there would be a great sirloin of roast beef, which was planted with the English standard, in fact, as a, as a symbol of, of being English.
0: But this idea, uh, Rebecca Spang, of, of the um, of being what we eat, in some way, um, links with, with two things. Uh, Rousseau, in 1762, in Emile eulogising locally produced food and saying, this made you what you are. I mean, he said, in our, org- uh, our organs of thought are formed by our diet, which is not very far from Feuerbach saying you are what you eat. And so that idea coming in, what do you make of that?
2: Um... I think the most crucial thing there would be to look at the spread, the diffusion, really I suppose from the period historians often referred to as the scientific revolution of the 17th century, um, but also with Descartes um, through the 18th and 19th century of a sort of materialist common sense. It's a growing perception, whether, you know, your Marx and Engels or your Bismarck, that things are really made out of blood and iron. They're not made out of ideas. It's not made out of divine inspiration, that there is a material basis to the world. And I think from that... um, the way in 18th century models it works, it's by the way that your nervous fibers are actually formed from your food. In the 19th century, there are certainly many people, um, food reformers, physiologists, some of the most important chemists of the 19th century, talking about how different dietary uh, makeups will make a certain population perhaps more energetic, um, very much the same sort of thing that in the 20th century people might say about the need to have a particular sort of diet if you're training to run marathons or if you're playing football. All of that, I think, has just become diffused as common sense today.
0: Philippe, you've said, tell me what you eat and I will tell you who you are, which is very much in the same area. Do you take that idea seriously, the Feuerbach idea and the Rousseau idea? Well, would she do if you said that.
1: Well, no. I, I, well, I, I take it seriously in a cultural sense, and I, when I said that, I meant that uh, you know I can tell from your plate what culture you belong to because there's actually no.
0: Sign is so representative of one's really, culture. It's you going but, uh, to a London restaurant today and having a look around, and all these people from London, let's presume that our old London is eating goodness knows what, from all over the place.
2: Oh, yes, but, but why I, would you presume that? It's a restaurant. Lots of them are probably tourists. Mm, I don't well,
0: know. Well, but, but also, you, I mean, you know, take that, any headcount yeah, in most restaurants in London, most yeah, of them are But, London you know, we, we're, we're
1: into a pluralistic, multicultural, diverse culture today, and the. Yeah, you no, know, I was just picking in, up. One little really, I was just
0: picking but, up rather niggardly
1: nagging there. Yeah, I want to get back to what you really means. Melvin, yeah. which is this question of how does food you know, affect your whole personality, your whole morality, and the whole life of a society. And I think that's a, also a terribly ancient idea. You know, to me, it's represented best, actually, by social cannibalism, because cannibals don't normally, except in the West, actually, eat for nutrition. They eat to appropriate the moral qualities of their victims. And in the late 18th century, uh, you can see this kind of thinking... Becoming very prominently the thought of intellectuals, and it's it's manifested not only in Rousseau's view that by eating local produce, by going back to milk and honey, you can somehow be a better person. That's the greatest example in the late eighteenth century: is the rise of vegetarianism, which is all to do, you know, with this the appropriating the moral qualities of what we. You know, Shelley said that Napoleon wouldn't have been a tyrant if he'd stuck to a vegetable diet.
0: Can we talk about that? The Romantics coming in, particularly Shelley, who's very very interesting on. This. He goes back to Pythagoras. He calls himself a Pythagorean. And Pythagoras thought that uh, eating meat uh, led to, uh, could lead to murder. And Shelley said that eating meat would lead to slavery, tyranny. I haven't got the list in front of me. He goes on and on a bit like that. Um, and uh, where, where did that come from, uh, Ivan Day? And uh,
3: why did he find it so powerful? I would actually go back a little bit further than the Romantic movement. I think that um, the idea of vegetarianism and its purity... Um, goes back actually to the 17th century. Um, and a number of eccentric medical men, um, I think, were propounding theories. One Englishman called Thomas Tryon, who called himself a Pythagorean also, um, propounded that to eat meat um, <clears throat> was to take on gross humours that would you know, um, disturb your bodily functions and advocated just eating pure grains and vegetables. But he was a voice in the wilderness, and it wasn't really until the 18th century and the early 19th century that this idea of food being something which is corpulent... I mean, there's a wonderful example which you give in your book about the oyster and the way that biting into a raw oyster um, is the only civilised version of raw food that we indulge in. And I think this sensuality of food was something which um, sensitive romantics like Shelley, um, reacted against, actually. I think it was distasteful to them to sort of eat what everyone else was happily doing at the time, which was to indulge in the inner organs of beasts and fowls with relish. Um, And I think that's something that has, we've learnt from the romantics, a kind of squeamishness about food. I mean, we do not like the display of food when we go on holiday to Spain in a Spanish butcher, and we see the pancreas and the gizzards and the livers there in front of us. The the Spanish housewife will rummage through them quite happily. But here we like to have our meat in a a neat packet, a little portion of brown material which is, is divorced from its origins. It's about urbanisation. It, yeah, why do you think this link between uh,
0: vegetarianism and uh, and and a political position came about so strongly that, that meat eaters could be murderers, putting it in, and people said that and have said that, uh, and that if you didn't eat meat you were unlikely to be or less likely to be. Where do you think that came from?
2: You find it in... 18th century efforts at cross cultural comparison, looking at uh, South Asia and saying that the Hindus, uh, where the most prominent members of society are vegetarian, were easily conquered by the meat eating British and French. Um, So you certainly see it there in cross-cultural comparison. I think it's also because until perhaps the 19th century and the industrial revolution in food, eating meat is a marker of social prominence.
0: Isn't there a rather simpler, simpler explanation? Forgive me, but eating meat means you have to kill living things, mm-hmm. and killing certain living things leads you on to kill other living mm-hmm. things, and, and that's where where it all goes wrong. Isn't that, isn't that the notion? Well, but it?
2: butchers are sort of social outcasts, and at least any European culture I can think of, they're not.
0: But Pythagoras has said, I haven't got the quote in front of me, Philippa. You'll correct me if I'm wrong, but Pythagoras said if you start killing one mm. thing, it leads to killing another, and it will lead to killing each other, and therefore kill nothing, eat, eat, eat of, of the fruits of the trees, like Frankenstein did. He turned from meat to eating other yeah, and I think it was also didn't. advised
1: against eating beans on the grounds that they would inflame excessive passion. And I, I think rice. it... I mean, I, 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 you know, I think all the, the factors that you, Rebecca and Ivan, have mentioned are, uh, are highly relevant here, but I mean, I think one which we haven't mentioned which probably ought to bring into it is sex. You know, the, a lot of these this early vegetarian movement is also to do with the promotion of chastity. Uh, it's to do with a revulsion against the sort of lubriciousness of fats, if I can uh, offer the listeners quite such a revolting image for a program which goes out in the mornings. Um, and it's to do with restraining the... Sexual appetite. I suppose one of the great gurus of the low protein diet in the um, early 19th century was the Reverend Sylvester Graham, who thought that sex wasn't only um, morally bad, it was actually unhealthy, and he likened orgasm to diarrhea. And this was his main reason for advocating a a low protein uh, diet and for promoting. Uh, the great cereal movement, which then, you know, became a major influence on the history of Serial food, justices. which is still with us today. And I expect, you know, listeners, to this program may just be finishing up their cereals right now. And they, 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 uh, I, I hope that their enjoyment will be enhanced when they think back to the origins of this movement and realize that it started amongst moralists who wanted to repress excessive sexual appetite.
0: I think that was a wonderful digression, as, as many of you are... Well, it's obviously to the point, Philippe, as many of you are, but I'm going to just be a little bit of a nag here and ask you... I mean, why do, do you, you think it a digression? Well, because it's <laughs> a lovely loop, uh, bringing the orgasm into why people turned into vegetarians. So, so I, no, I enjoyed it. And people who didn't enjoy it, well, there you go. We, we are, um, I, <laughs> well, I I want, to that's just, the list, I want to stick to, is there Has there been any research? Is there any evidence that people who do not eat meat are gentler and kinder and less likely to engage
3: in wars and murders than people who do admit. Not that I know of. I mean, uh, I'd like to, to turn um, one idea on its head here about um, vegetables not being provocative in terms of, you know, their sexual stimulation. I mean, the Renaissance <laughs> medical theories, the potato from the New World was considered to be... Um, a um, stimulant in fact one one german oh, it's medical a promotion writer. for the potato <laughs> well i mean often the case i mean coffee was another thing that was promoted like this as as was tea, but I mean people believed it I mean in the eighteenth century, one German medical writer I, I forget his name, actually um, told um, parents that they shouldn 't let young people eat potatoes because um, they would encourage masturbation, and I, I think that the whole um, rationale for these root vegetables, particularly parsnips, carrots, potatoes, um, having so-called aphrodisiacal properties was through their morphology. They, they mm. resembled sexual organs. Let's just finish this on asking you whether you do think that
0: diets uh, do make substantial differences to the way people behave. You said earlier on, uh, Rebecca, you mentioned that there were still... Uh, we were very much into the idea of specialized diets. Now, if you ran a marathon, you were recommended to... I have no idea what sort of diet you have <laughs> in a marathon, but you were re- recommended to do A, B and C and drink D, E and F and so on. If you're a heavyweight boxer, you do something else and so on. And these things clearly are, are thought to work uh, and probably do. So if they work in those cases, how far do we go in turning, uh, in turning food, like the intake into the outcome?
2: Well, I mean I as I said, I think it's it's almost generalized common sense and except for the most resistant uh pro-pharmaceutical sorts of physicians, um everybody if you say, "Oh, I just feel sort of tired and run down," somebody will say, "Well, you know, you you probably need to be eating better." And it's just it's just generalized common sense, I think. And I'm not sure if I think it's right or wrong, but I know that it's intuitive, certainly in middle-class European culture.
0: But do you think there's a distinctive relationship, Philippa, just as a concluding thing, between what people... Because you really do range over world cultures, and I do tease you a bit, but I admire it enormously, between the way that the diets in the East, for instance, take huge generalisations, uh, uh, were so very different from the diets in the West at, at one stage. Did this mean that that the development of cultures, ideas, sensibilities was different? And did you, would you put that down to the food they ate?
1: No, I wouldn't. I mean, I would put it down to the total culture of the food. I would, at least I would say that it's, it's very intimately connected with the total culture of food, but not specifically with the type of food or the ingredients or even the cuisson. Uh, but when you add to all of those things, table rituals, uh, the kinds of uh, socializing which go along around, around food, the way it's produced, the way it's distributed, the way it's processed, I think all of those are inseparable, you know, from the general features of society. The two great, you know, revolutions of our time in food have really been the, the green revolution, the introduction of new strains of staple foods which are encouraged by uh, chemical Pesticides and fertilizers, so-called green revolution, there isn't anything terribly green about it, and the, you know, the new sort of threatened revolution, GM foods. And it's very interesting that people are saying about these things the sort of things which uh, we've detected them saying in the past about uh, rival kinds of uh, eating. There's you know, a big moral debate about the Green Revolution, and about GM foods, which gets confused with a sort of health-orientated debate about the sort of effects which eating this stuff can have on you. And I think the the health dimension and the moral dimension seems to be inseparable in the way people respond and react and think and feel about food.
0: Well, thank you very much to Felipe Fernandez-Armesto, to Mm -hmm. Ivan Day, and to Rebecca Spang, and thank you all very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.
2: Introducing PocketCast, the powerful podcasting platform recognized by Wired Magazine as the podcast app every iPhone user needs and by the New York Times as the favorite among podcast experts.
0: PocketCast is beautifully designed, easy to use, and helps you quickly discover and enjoy your favorite podcasts with over 700,000 shows to choose from. Download the app,
2: now free, at pocketcast.com.